This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend, great friend, Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Well, we'll see about that after I... <laughs> After I share this news with you, how good oh, a friend no. I am. I, I, I teased this at the end of the last episode, and it's actually something that I've been really wrestling with internally. A, a big part of the way I describe you to people is she's the author of my favorite book over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, and that book is The Informationist. And when I finished reading Liar's Legacy... I, my initial thought was, this is my favorite book of yours. And, <laughs> and I, I, re- I couldn't even say You're it to myself. you so nervous with this lead up. Okay, okay, okay. I, I literally couldn't even say it to myself. It's like, no, it can't be. I need to think about this. I need to, I need to rest on this and, and figure this out. And um, so I gave it a few days and I thought, yeah, this is my favorite book of hers. It's like, should I tell her? Yes or okay, no, because so why, it, it's like there's this whole thing of this is my all-time favorite book is this, and now it's something else, and I almost felt guilty about it. So I feel, I feel bad about this, you know, okay. that you've been kicked out, no, so to speak. Uh, no, I haven't. I've replaced myself with myself. Um, okay, <laughs> bear me out here. Anytime someone tells me the informationist is their favorite book of all the books I've written or in general, if they tell me it's their favorite book in general, that's like a huge compliment, of course, obviously, or one of their top 10 or whatever. It's a huge compliment if they'd only ever read the informationist of my books. But when they say it's their favorite of all the books that I've ever written and will always be their favorite, that is... A little bit of an underhanded compliment. Like, I, I get that it's an awesome thing from, from their perspective, but for me as a writer, it's disheartening because every time I go into a book, I am trying to meet those expectations and then exceed them. And if it's still always only that book is people's favorite book, then that means I'm continually failing in this drive to be better and and to to grow and and to provide a reason for them to keep coming back. So when somebody says to me, you know, I love the informationist, but I have to admit Liar's Legacy is now my favorite book, I go, thank God. <laughs> Finally. So you're not mad at me? No, can you imagine how depressing it must be? to believe that your best, your first was your best, and you will never, ever be able to achieve that again. Like, it's all downhill from there. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you put into trying to do better, you can't. You're never going to be good enough again. That's depressing. But that's what it's been like for me year after year (laughs) after year with so many readers. And I just keep going because, well, 
the stuff that I'm doing is good enough. They're still enjoying it. It might not be their favorite, but it's still good enough. So to hear somebody say, oh, my God, I have a new favorite. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> okay. I don't feel so guilty. No. You've just done me an enormous favor. Thank you. But I have to say, I mean, you know, a part of the whole informationist as favorite for all those years, it was just so impactful. And, and there was no way to have another book like that. Like you couldn't come out with the second book in the series and have it be more impactful. It's like, you know, the first James Bond movie is the best oh, yeah, James I, Bond movie. And I it, understand that. I, I just recently went to watch um, Juman, Jumanji 2. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I do I, not see a lot of movies in the theater, but I loved that first one yep. so much. I've seen it three or four times that I'm like, I have to go um, see this movie in, in the theater. And that was my reward to myself when all this chaos finally came together um, around the 15th of, this, of January. And... I finished the deadline on the, the work that I can't talk about. And um, this whole, you know, moving, finished, got everything, everything was moved. It all happened within a few days uh, of itself. It was like stress, 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 pressure for just building up, building up. And then within 24 hours, it was all over. And that was my reward to myself was to go see Jumanji 2. And... Uh, I knew going in that because I'd loved the first one so much, it would be almost impossible for this second movie to meet those expectations. They did. But but the way I described it is I was not disappointed seeing this second movie. <laughs> so that meant that it was probably as good or better than the first one. But because that first one so took me by surprise and was just beyond what I could have anticipated you can't top that <laughs> you, you just can't no matter how much you you uh you do to top it the ex expectation that 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 newness that rawness that you feel of just like oh my god you can't ever replace that because now you already know what you're you're hoping to get going into it and i understand that's kind of the same way when you're reading books in a series so all the more so why it's so awesome when somebody tells me hey i have a new favorite i'm like yes <laughs> So we have some questions today. This is an Ask Taylor episode. Oh, we haven't done one of these in a long time. We That's haven't. Fun. We haven't. And since we were talking about the informationists, let's start out um, with a question that kind of relates to the informationists, but really just relates in general to uh, writing. If you could tell your pre-informationist writing self anything now, what would it be? And pre, but when I say pre-information is for people who don't know, that was Taylor's first book. So yes, it was my first book. Um, God Almighty, I I I spend all my time giving advice to people on this show <laughs> that I'm I'm drawing blanks. Like, what would I? How do how do I come up with something that I haven't already said a million times? <laughs> um, and, and and I don't know because when I when I went into this, I think I had a pretty solid grasp of um, of how it all worked. I think I would tell myself that that you're you're never going to get as much attention for any subsequent book as you will for your debut book. 
So milk it for all it's worth. Because, and, and that's not just me, that's, that's debuts in general. Mm -hmm. um, you don't know going in that that's not normal. It, I mean, you realize that, hey, this seems to be a lot more attention than other debut authors are getting. This is turning out to be a really big book. They're making a big deal about this. This feels weird, but... Yeah, but you only get you one bite of that apple. You only get that, yeah, only once. You don't realize that the second book doesn't follow the same pattern. The third book doesn't follow the same pattern. The second, it gets less and less and less and less as you go along. And so to um, moderate, modulate the expectations accordingly so that you're able to... I don't know, pick up the slack or preempt things or, or stay more on top of it in a way that maybe your team was doing for you before. And then all of a sudden they're not there and you're like, Hey, wait a minute, what's going on? So to be aware of that, I guess going in, I, I, I think I would have liked to have known that. All right. So that's a good answer, but I'm, I want more. So that's, that's like your pre-publication writing self. Let's, let's talk about like your pre-writing writing self. So when you're first thinking, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write this book. Like if you could put yourself back in that spot where, you know, and, and all of the insecurities that you probably had and, and felt as you're typing along and, and trying to put together a story. And if you could talk to that person, what would you tell her? That's an even harder question because when I went into this, I didn't go into it thinking that I was going to get published. I went into it just saying I'm going to write a book just to say that I did it. And by the time the book sold, I life had changed so much for me. I was back into survival mode. I had written, and it had been a year uh, that my agent had pulled the book off the market due to uh, the economy having blown up and, and publishing being in turmoil and editors were getting laid off right and left. And she did not want to try and sell this book in that environment because of the either you it would get just like a minimal advance or it would get rejected just because of the chaos or it would uh, end up getting a ban. Like so many bad things could have happened to it. And she's like, it's not the right time to sell a book. I'd advise this book. I'd advise that you sit tight and wait. And so there was like a year period that went by of waiting. And, um, and I was in pure survival mode by the time we got to that. I don't even remember her telling me that she was going to take the book back out on the market. So when I got the news that it sold, it came as a complete and utter shock to me. Not that, Hey, it sold, but I didn't even know that it was a possibility because I was just not even aware. So I came to it so much differently than than most people do. Most people, they've, they've, they've got this book and they're working, trying so hard to find an agent and trying to get published. And, and uh, so it, it's really hard to even know what my advice to that pre-writer person would be because it just, it feels like, so much of what happens in this industry like is luck and granted you make the luck happen by doing the things that you need to do but it's still so arbitrary it's not like the best books get published it just happens to be that that particular book fell on the right desk of the right person at the right time in an industry that was looking for exactly that kind of thing and you happen to win. And 
but it doesn't feel like that when it's happening because you feel like I put in all this hard work and I did all the things. And so, of course, I made this happen. But you didn't. You you did, but you didn't, you know. And so, um, but but I knew back then, even then, how much of it was luck. And I didn't have anything riding on it. I didn't have anything to lose because I didn't know anything could be gained. So... I don't even know what advice I'd have today that could have been helpful to me back then in the pre pre stages of things. Okay. Well, good answer. Good not answer, but still a, a good a good answer. <laughs> I tried. All right. Now we'll, we'll we're going to completely change tracks here. Okay. You have in the Monroe series you had male characters, but there was never a male focal point character. I mean, Bradford, maybe kind of a little bit, but with, with the Liars series, you know, there's Jack and there's Jill and there's Holden. You know, you've got two primary characters that are males. Three, if you count Rob in Liars Paradox. Yes. The boyfriend. Yes. Yes. What's the most difficult thing or, or was it difficult for you to write a male lead character? I feel like this is the kind of answer that could really get me in trouble. I don't I don't feel that I struggled to write the male characters, but the results are really in the eye of the reader. And um I I think perhaps the reason why I've not struggled and I'm not I I'm sure there are a lot of female authors who write male characters who don't struggle who don't feel like they struggle. But it, it takes me all the way back to some of the very first underhanded compliments I started getting with the informationist. I'd start hearing from guys, and they would say to me, well, I don't typically read female authors, but I make an exception for you. And I'll be like, well, I will take it where I can get it, I guess. Thank you. But I started to think about why. Is, it a why? Little, is that a little bit like The Informationist is my all-time favorite book? No, <laughs> no, totally not the same thing. Um, but uh, along that, along those lines, there's a story. There's a reviewer who uh, who's been a really big fan of my work, and I'm not going to name him because um, this could be come come across the wrong way. But I didn't know who he was at the time. I didn't know who any of the people in his social circles were at the time. And I, it was, I think, my first BoucherCon. And I somehow ended up at some party somewhere. I don't know how I got dragged there. I have no recollection. I just ended up there. And someone introduced me to this person. And he was standing next to some of his friends. And they all started harassing him. Because apparently he had said, this is the best thriller written by a woman I've ever read. And they would not let that go, that he had to add the by the woman part onto it. And it was hilarious. And they still harass him about that. <laughs> um, and so, but I got to thinking about it. Um, why, why am I hearing from these grumpy old men who don't typically read books by women, but they're making passes for, for me on this? Why am I getting the, the pass? And... I started reading more about what it is about books written by women that men typically don't enjoy. And these are big generalities here, okay? I am speaking in general terms. It's nothing wow. is this is uh, insert uh, danger alert here. 
the huge danger alert because this is the type of thing that brings the trolls out of the, out of the closet or people who are angry at you for I my cousin Joe would never okay I'm not talking about your cousin Joe all right <laughs> as a as a general rule men and women tend to process emotion and logic differently. Women tend to run on a gut instinct, emotional level. It does not mean they're incapable of logic. It means that they're processing on two levels. And men tend to run more on the logic, non-emotional side. Doesn't mean they're not capable of emotion, just that they tend to run more on logic. When writing books, women tend to bring that aspect of running on the, the multiple wavelengths into their work where they tend to um, over in, into internalize, over internalize a lot of things that women in a way that women would that men don't. So men, as a general rule, tend to be more action oriented problem solvers. They don't like to sit around talking about things or journaling their feelings or that's not what guys as a general rule tend to do. Um, an example I read in some book way back when about maybe it was like how men think or something. Apparently I was researching for this project long before I knew I was researching <laughs> for it, um, was an example of in a book where a, uh, a couple of teenage boys had were like messing with a horse or something, and one of them got bucked off and fell. And in this book, the written by a woman, the one friend went running over there, all concerned and freaked out about the other friend. And a man read that Trent the the manuscript and said, "No way! If this happened to me or one of my friends, we would have laughed our butts off." over what had happened, the guy getting, as long as he wasn't dead or didn't have a, you know, bone sticking out somewhere, we would, we would think that was the most hilarious thing that had ever happened. And that's a big contrast in the way between how men and women, generally speaking, tend to react to, to situations. And I guess that stuck with me, really, really stuck with me. And so in writing these male characters, even from the informationist onward, I made a conscious effort not to over-internalize the male character's thoughts and feelings about things, um, but to make them very action-oriented. And when they did get into feelings, to make it very decisive. And it didn't. I didn't mind if my female characters did the, you know, sitting and talking or whatever. But as a general rule, in a thriller, you just don't want that because you need things to happen. So you're thinking about stuff on the fly. You're thinking about stuff in retrospect. And in, in that way, even Monroe is a little bit man-like or male-like in the way she processes information, not deliberately to make her masculine, but out of necessity for the sake of a thriller. So I think the reason that I was given this pass by male readers was because I did not over-internalize, spend a lot of time thinking, dwelling on emotions and blah, blah, blah. In none of the characters in my books really do that. And so to men who don't naturally relate though to those men, not saying all men, to those men who don't naturally relate to that quote unquote more female way of thinking, they weren't faced with it constantly in these books. And they could just read these books as thrillers as they would written by any other man. 
It wasn't a deliberate conscious choice on my part to be one of the guys. It was more a deliberate conscious choice to write a thriller or to keep it moving. Um, with the first one, I didn't know I was writing a thriller, but it was to keep it moving. And then to not over-feminize the men. Um, so by the time I got around to writing Jack, Holden, Rob, I'd already had six books of experience in dealing with writing in such a way that it's not over over feminizing the characters. So I don't know if that makes any sense. I don't know if my readers would agree with me or not. I just know that that's where I was coming from in doing it. Okay. All right. Now, another. I'm just veering all around. This is like that street in San Francisco, the Crooked Street. There, there is no flow at all to what I'm doing here. We know you as someone who reads things and breaks it apart and shows us how it can be made better. And uh, two weeks ago, episode 119, we talked about evoking emotions. Have you ever read a book that made you cry? Yeah, my own. (laughs) 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 I haven't got to that part in in The Informationist yet, Um, but I do remember when I was writing it, and I'm sure I will write about it in the book club post that I'm going to, when I finally get there. But when I realized that a certain character was going to die, I broke down and cried. I don't want him to die. (laughs) (laughs) But he has to, but I don't want him to. Um, But as far as, okay. So yes, uh, books that have made me cry. I'm going to tell you a horror story here. Okay. Um, A book that I hate with, Almost every possibility of hatred in me is the book, The Little Prince. Okay. I cannot even, like, I'm struggling right now to even talk about it <laughs> without crying. <laughs> My voice just broke. Oh, I can't talk. <laughs> that's, that's how much <laughs> that book affected me. All right. Well, I guess that answers that question. I think I was eight or nine <laughs> when I picked it up just randomly uh-huh. um, in somebody's library. And I think I cried the whole rest of the day. Now I feel like I have to read it. You've read it, I'm sure. I don't remember it. It didn't, it didn't have a big impact on me. I've, I've never been able to read it since. I think I tried. Um, somebody gifted it to my kids when they were very, very young, too young to have it. And so I held on to it, keep it safe. And I, I found it in a, on a shelf or a box and I opened it up and tried to read it. Couldn't. Hmm. I want to burn that thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now let's, so, let's go to older Taylor. Okay. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure I'm sure I've read books that have All right, well let me cry. let me rephrase the question. If you were reading a book today that made you feel emotion that, that such strong emotion that you cried, would you read it and keep going or would you go back and break it down? You know, I think that if I happened upon a book that evoked that kind of emotion in me, um, there would be no point in breaking it down because it already works. So 
the fact that I could read it without being distracted and that it could affect me like that means that it was done very, very well. It was amazing um, because it's really hard for me to be pulled into any book that well uh, anymore, ever. It's really, really hard to read. Um, and so I, I get requests from authors saying, you know, can you read my book? Can you blurb my book or whatever? And I'm like, you don't want me to. You really, really don't. Because I'm not, I'm not your audience, um, and uh, I, I might not even be able to read it. But lots of other people will be able to read it. But I can't say that to people because you know that's like offensive. Like I'm so much better than you. It's not that. It's just it's a, it's an OCD uh, fa failing of mine. I wish I I wish I could enjoy reading as much as I once did, and it's it's really hard. I feel like I've sacrificed that that aspect of enjoyment for, for the craft. But, um, I would think that if I did come across a book that connected with my emotions on that level, I would not want to break it down. I would just want to appreciate it for what it was because wow. Okay, good. All right. So we're going to veer in a completely different direction. Once again, we have talked in the past about the fact that you generally don't read your reviews, you read enough to get a sense of what people thought. And, you know, if, if there were specific I read, things, I read them. Okay. I do. All right. So I that's mean, like, one, but that's not the question. Okay. All right. So the question is, and this honest answer, do you Google yourself? No, never. I mean, only if like, um, I have a book coming out, uh -huh. then I'll Google, my name and then the book title, because sometimes my, like, for example, Liar's Paradox, if you just Google Liar's Paradox, you're going to pull up just, you know, so much stuff that is completely unrelated because it's such a common, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a known thing, right? It, it hundreds of books have been written about it. People teach about it. YouTube channels are devoted to it. The Liar's Paradox. So I'd have to put my name in there to be able to find anything related to the book. And so to get a sense of like, is there any buzz going about it? What are people saying? Like, is it being shared? So yes, I will Google when there's a new book coming out. But as a general rule, I do not Google myself. I mean, first of all, how do you Google me without yeah. putting one of my books there? Because you're going to get the other Taylor Stevens. Um, so... It's hard. It's hard to find anything that's not specifically book related, you know. Um, but I, I'm, uh, I'd be really nervous if I happened in on a conversation about myself. Somebody, people talking about me behind my back and not about my books. Oh man, yeah. Don't Google <laughs> yourself. <laughs> All right, last question, and. We've talked about this before, but you've never really given a definitive answer. I've, I've kind of asked the question in different ways before regarding different series, but just specifically, do you find it easier to write the first book in a series or a subsequent book in the series? Well, I think the reason you never got a definitive answer, definitive answer is because there isn't one. Um there's pros and cons to both. Like the first book in the series is hard in the sense that you're, you have to establish everything from the ground up, but it's also freedom because 
you're establishing everything from the ground up. You're not limited by what you've already put in other books. And and so development-wise, like it was really, really time-consuming to develop Jack and Jill, the first book, um, but not so crazy difficult to write once I finally figured out which direction I wanted it to go. We already know Liar's Legacy almost killed me, but that was because of the complexity of the story. Um, but the further you get into this series, the harder it is to keep finding original things to write about and to find ways to introduce new new readers to the character in ways that aren't won't annoy readers who are now six or seven books into the series. So it's, I think it's easier on one hand, it's it's probably easier to write the first book, but a little bit harder to develop it. Okay. I was afraid your answer was going to be, the answer to the question, is it harder to write the first book or a subsequent book? Your answer was going to be yes. (laughs) (laughs) Missed opportunity. (laughs) All right. That is it for this episode of Ask Taylor. Taylor, what's the best question anyone's ever asked you in an interview? That one? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's my realizing I should have said yes for the last one. And and (laughs) that would be the best answer. Yes, that would have been the best answer to any question you've ever Mm -hmm. given in an interview. Have you ever done a an interview that was just particularly memorable? You look back on it and it's like, wow, that was amazing. Yes. And you're going to think that I'm just blowing smoke up your butt, but I'm not. And it was the first time we, we talked. And I was actually, I just did another podcast yesterday. I was a guest on, I'm so, I'm so bad. I can't remember the name of it, but it had to do with wine. And we will (laughs) put a, we will put a link to it in the show notes. So you don't have to remember the name of it. Oh, thank you. And we got to talking about my podcast, this podcast. And I'm like, really, this is a Taylor and Steve podcast. And, um, they were asking me how it got started. And, and I started talking about the first time that you and I, um, spoke and just how completely refreshing that interview that we had was. And the reason being that I was on the, I think at that point, more or less the tail end of the informationist uh, promo, whatever. And not knowing then that a debut novel is going to get so much more attention than the rest of them did. Um, I couldn't appreciate at the time how much attention I was getting. I just knew that it was overwhelming. And I was doing interview after interview after interview, and they were often so frustrating. And the reason they were frustrating is because they were the same questions over and over and over and over again, and they were not at all questions that I could easily answer. They were being asked by people who clearly had not read my book, who knew nothing about me, and who basically just had canned stock questions that they were they would ask every author. What am I supposed to do with the question of who were your favorite authors as a child? Who were your your childhood author heroes? Who's your favorite? Who would you say that you uh, has has the, had the most influence on your work of all the authors you've read? What are your favorite top five favorite books? And I'm just like. 
Seriously? <laughs> Do you know nothing about me? <laughs> I know. It was so frustrating. And, and it was over and over and over again. So to have a conversation with somebody who clearly read my work, who loved my work, who had researched me as an author, and who was interested in me as a human being and as a writer, not just as how can I write some great copy or, or record this interview. It was a very human connection. I came away from that going, wow. And that's why we're still talking. <laughs> and that's why we have a podcast together. Yeah, and I, I honestly did not ask you that question to get that answer, but the, the answer means a lot to me. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I, I remember at the end of it going, that was like talking to a friend for an hour and a half and then going, no, you're crazy. She's just promoting her book. <laughs> and <laughs> no, it was here a- we are. I don't know how many years later. <laughs> it's a, been a long time. And yeah. And we've only met in real life that one. I mean, that one time, but it was a couple times in the same two or three day period. But yes, it's all been pretty much over email and, and quote unquote radio podcast and whatever. But yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun and I'm so glad that you contacted me because I can't imagine what my life would be like right now if we'd never met. Yeah. And mine, mine would be much different as well. And that's one of the things like historically looking back on the impact of a book, if I hadn't read the informationist, we wouldn't be doing this podcast because that story had such an impact on me that when I started doing podcasts, my number one goal for doing the podcast, the first podcast I do, I did was to get to interview Taylor Stevens. Wow. I did not know that part. That was, it was like, I wanted to do it, but then it's like, I like to have a goal for everything. It's like my goal. I'll know that I can quit when I've been able to interview Taylor. got to know the real me and realized it wasn't really all that much. And then, yeah, it's like, uh, yes, do you think we should do a podcast together? Like, I, I don't remember what your initial answer was. I think you, it was something like... Me, I just told this story. It's so funny. Okay. I just told this story yesterday. Um, but it was a case of, hey, have you thought about doing a podcast? And I thought you meant do another recording with you. Like, we'd done by that point, I don't know, three, four uh, interviews together over time mm-hmm. because, you know, you had the author biz and you had, um, uh, the FM thing and there was something else going on. So I'd done quite a few with you and I thought that's what you meant. And I was like, yeah, sure. Just, uh, tell me what time works for you. And you're like, no, I mean, like, have you ever thought of doing your podcast, like your own show? And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen, Steve. And you were like, well, what if I, what if I recorded it for you? And, and I did the audio processing and all you had to do was just do, do the, the, the show. And I'm still like, Oh, and then I'm like, well, if we did that, would you like, could we just talk like we do right now on your shows and you ask me questions or whatever? And you're like, well, would you want me to? I'm like, yeah. And you're like, okay, fine, we'll do that. And that's <laughs> why we have the Taylor Stevens show, because of Steve. And uh, yeah, so here we are, 221 episodes later, still doing it. Crazy. All right, this is fun. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to do this week after week. We really appreciate it. Thanks for being here, guys, and we'll be in your ears next week. <laughs> <laughs>